0: Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand.
1: Welcome to ESL Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. The session today will cover hepatocellular carcinoma, what has been new in 2022 and what is to be expected. I'm Peter Galev from Mainz University Medical Center, joined by my co-moderator, Arndt Vogel, a well-known hepatologist and um, GI oncologist from Hannover, Uh, University Medical Center, joined by Anna Saborowski, also from Hanover Medical Center, and Bruno Sangro, a good friend from Pamplona, Spain. We will focus on HCC, hepatocellular carcinoma, and on systemic therapy. This is where we have, have seen tremendous progress over the years and a change in guideline recommendations. Current standard of care is the combination out of PD-1 ligand inhibition, atezilizumab, and bevacizumab anti-angiogenesis. This is what was based on IMBRAVE-150 two years ago and is now increasingly challenged by new trials with respect to other combinations and even monotherapy. In particular, the combination of up and Tramolimumab has entered the space and um, it's an interesting question Bruno if I may get started with you whether this is changing our uh, standard of care already or just adding to it. Uh,
2: thank you Peter for the question. I think there are like two different perspectives on on the combination of durvalumab and tremelimumab. For the general audience, let me uh, remind you that durvalumab is an anti one agent, while tremelimumab is an anti-CTLA4 agent. And these two checkpoint inhibitors act on different uh, stages of the anti-tumor immune response, uh, and and. Uh, in, in in a, in a, a grass summary, but we could say that premolimumab is is more potent on the initiation phase of the immune response, while uh, um, uh, duvalumab acts mainly on the uh, later stages of the immune response, avoiding uh, uh, T-cell exhaustion. So one thing one uh, directly from your question is, what, what, what does this change? First, it provides another option and an option that is, has a different safety profile than atisilizumab and devazizumab because of the absence of the anti effect of devazizumab.
1: Are we um, sure about this, Bruno, if I may interrupt? Because the um, patients recruited to these trials differed. There was no main portal vein invasion in the Dova trial, so they um, reduced the bleeding risk by selecting the appropriate patients.
2: No, absolutely. I mean I'm not saying that the, the trial should be compared in terms of safety. What I what I tend to mean is that uh, the, the 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 two combinations by themselves have a different safety profile. And and the the uh, side effects of bevazizumab go beyond GI potential GI bleeding. They have this effect, this protonbrotic effect that is is particularly relevant when we deal with patients with a cardiovascular risk or cardiovas- recent cardiovascular events. And and with that I mean a, a significant proportion of a patient have. What I think is good is that we have now more than one option. Uh, and uh, uh, although at the end of the day we have to make an individual decision with each patient, having more options is I think is is good. So I think we have to applaud that we have a different uh, a second option for a first line. I don't think this will. Uh, replace atezolizumab plus pembrolizumab uh, at all? I think indeed that atezolizumab plus pembrolizumab has a very strong position as the core, in the core of, of our systemic therapy decisions.
1: And Both trials think... were clearly positive, but are they really comparable? May I ask you Anna on on this issue? I mean the absolute numbers differ: nineteen months, sixteen months in Brave and uh, and Himalaya.
0: And I think this is a problem that um, we can probably discuss for the entire evening, um, how can we really compare those large phase three trial and how can we like derive really our therapeutic implications based on the data that we have, knowing that this is not a real head to head comparison of all the different options um, that we have. and. Um, I think this is this is quite a quite a li- dilemma, but I, I I agree with Bruno when he says I think one of the keywords of twenty twenty two in HSC systemic therapy is options, and uh, we have them, and um, I think a lot of the questions that we still have related to these options um, will be further clarified only when we are actually using those options, and we cannot directly compare them, but. As clinicians, I think uh, we can use the data that we have and uh, the implications that they give us uh, to try to come up with a a combination therapy for first-line or with a therapy for first-line that we deem our patients most eligible to benefit from.
1: So you are saying use the options and gain real-life data. And go from there for the long-term run. Yeah,
0: and um, you see and what- options wisely, right? And um, I think this is uh, this is key. Um, it, it, we have to we have to look at what is feasible. Where can we generate? How can we generate evidence in a feasible way so that we can easily transform it to our our clinical treatment of patients? Yeah.
1: and is be- strongly
2: provocative, and because. We will surely talk about uh, real-life data and the need for real-life information. But I think, uh, and and this is one of the things I I miss, I still miss in the HEC field, is independent research. We're saying, uh, should we compare trials? I think what we do have is the option to run independent research to compare uh, therapies directly. And this is something we should uh, certainly... Improve in the field in our future.
0: But I mean, the
1: trials where this is going to be the case where you not go for specific endpoints and define then a positive or negative trial, but add information to to the scene. For example, in, in the intermediate stage, and our trial, ABC, um, HCC is amongst those. Uh, it's um, really open and has several endpoints, and uh, I, I mean, it, this is one of the very big issues, whether we um, can stick to the old setting of clinical trials with the standard endpoints, OS and PFS, and it's then either negative or positive, black or white. I think there's a lot more information coming from these trials, which is lost by just um, defining them as negative or positive.
3: Maybe maybe I can jump in here at one point. So I think this cross-trial comparison is interesting. We always apologize when we do it. But on the other hand, I think... You don't. Yeah. Right. Sometimes I do. Yeah. Um, So. Uh, so, but I think we need to. I mean, we, we we just said we need to to make our decisions wisely, and I think we need to compare. And you already uh, mentioned before to to Bruno that some of the tribes had different in and exclusion criteria. But I think it's even more difficult because how can we decide what is the most effective treatment, right? I mean, in terms of hazard ratios, it is difficult because we do not only have the experimental arm, but also the control arm. And we have learned that the control arm is not very constant, right? In, in terms of median overall survival, not only that we have seen a tremendous increase of survival in the control arm, but even within the most recent trial in the serafnip arm, we have really huge differences between 13 month and almost 16 months, right? Which has an impact of the hazard ratio. So the hazard ratio of the trial is not only driven by the efficacy of the experimental arm, but also by the efficacy or non-efficacy of the control arm, Yeah, which brings me back to more options. And I think we do not only have new kits on the block, but also an old kit is back on the block, right? I mean, for Lenvatnib, um, we have seen, Interesting data in the LEAP-002 study, which compared lenvatinib as a control arm to lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. I think many of us thought that this would be a highly effective combination. It is an effective combination with a long survival of more than 21 months, but statistically, it was not superior to lenvatinib with a median overall survival of 19 months, which I think is interesting. So we have seen for both RAVNIP and lenvatinib and near increase in median overall survival over the years. Um, which is most likely also due to to more options we have and the options to do sequential therapy, um, which I think is also something we need to keep in mind when we talk about options in the first-line setting.
1: Can I challenge you here? Because, I mean, one of the explanations why um, clinical trials are um, uh, different in 2022 compared to 2007, for example, is that we now have second and even third line therapy, and that is adding to survival. But PFS was also different, not not different. Um, PFS for Pembrolizumab plus uh, um, um, uh, lenvatinib was basically the same compared to lenvatinib alone. How can we explain that?
3: I mean, it's a good question. I mean, in terms of consistency of PFS, I think this is consistent both for Serafnib and also for Serafnib, at least something, right? Um, I, I think the question is, why did we not observe, and I'm not sure whether this was your question, the higher or longer PFS for the combination compared to the monotherapy? Correct, yeah. I think this is something what we really learned that we cannot combine everything with everything, right? And I think this was a little bit our concept, I think, that we just try to use all drugs we have and see and hope that they are more effective. It worked surprisingly strong for the combination of a checkpoint inhibitor and then an VEGF directed therapy, either with Bevacizumab or now with Rovacirna, which is in TKI also with a strong VEGF directed therapy. But it not did not work so good for the combination of a TKI with a checkpoint inhibitor, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting and which might brings me to a question to Anna. So what, what can we do to to really be more precise um in, in terms in, in in the years of precision medicine, right? I mean we are combining everything, we are only using targeted therapies, but it, sometimes it, it, it has a little bit of guessing, right? I mean what can we combine and what not?
0: Well I guess I mean to start off in a positive way I think we've seen many advances and we've learned a lot in 2022. Um, However, what we didn't really make a leap forward was in the detection detection of biomarkers, and I think this is something that we urgently need to discuss in more detail. And um, we should also uh, try, as as translational um, scientists, we should really be dedicated to 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 translational programs of clinical trials in order to define and understand um, what segregates patients into those that respond versus those that do not respond or benefit less from therapies. And I think 2022 has seen a lot of proof of concepts, right? We have seen that IO-based combinations are working. Um, maybe to some of our surprise also, um, we have seen that, that the old kids on the block, like lenvatinib Barton, have kind of outperformed our expectations, which is good, I think. Um, but now we have to to really advance HCC therapies. Um, we have to know, go back, and we need to understand what's behind um, the responses and non-responses. And I think this is critical now because only then we will get away from, as you said, combining everything with everything and more moving towards um, experimentally designed clinical trials that have a real hypothesis that they are trying to address and prove.
2: If Anna, I, if I can add to that, uh, and I entirely agree this is something we we surely miss. it's It's also true that we need to think back uh, from what we have done. and in 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 when it comes to the combinations of Tkis plus uh, 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 immunotherapy, it, it was it is the the scarce information that we have from uh, from uh, animal models. Uh, we're pointing out to a potential effect on um, uh, stromal cells with a immunosuppressive effect. and and we and, and we built on that to think, well, this this might be a rationale for discrimination that is was already being tested. And now I think we have to focus on why there is no not on, no synergy at all, but maybe even, there is a deleterious effect in in the immune response and i think to this road from 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 the lab to the clinic but then from the clinic to the lab is something we have to deal with But
1: but, to elaborate on that, Bruno, um, if you take uh, caposantinib as an example, I felt that the um, data on caposantinib in animal models and cell lines were the most robust to claim that there would be an immune modulatory impact. And then cosmic data, caposantinib and atezolizumab, a negative trial. At least with respect to overall survival. So it is not so easy to translate our uh, model data into into a clinical setting. Uh, apparently,
2: absolutely.
0: But we can take it both ways, right? I mean, so coming from the mouse, having a clear hypothesis, trying to prove it in human—that's a great way. Um, but we now have the option that there are those phase three trials out there that really collected um, tissues and primary patient materials in a very standardized way, and we know exactly how they performed in the clinic. And I do hope that uh, we can really make use of those resources that are actually there and use this from the clinic and take it back to the bench. And maybe that way would be very informative also to guide us in mouse modeling. And-
3: uh, so And I mean, I, I need to be a little bit negative and critical here because, I mean, we are only using targeted molecular therapies, right, in NHCC. In and what do we know? What do we really actually know about the targets? What do we know about why does carbosantinib is effective after Yeah, I mean, we do know that there are some targets that are inhibited, but in which order, which is most important, we don't really know. And when we think about molecular molecular signatures, I mean, nothing has really confirmed in prospective trials. Yeah. When we think about data in Murin models, as Peter just pointed out, I mean, for carbosantinib, it was strong, but it did not really translate it in efficacy in men. In, in so, I mean, of course, as a physician scientist, I always think we need to do translational research. We need to use these Murin models. But I mean, to be really honest, to be really believe in that, um, And what would be the most effective way to really make progress here? I mean, is it like really murid model? Should we go more to PDX models, organoid, 3D cultures, whatsoever? So what is the future?
2: And uh, I think part of the future will be getting the most of the in tremendous effort that we've made in collecting samples. We've always been complain- uh, saying that uh, we, we did not perform biopsies. Now we have done. For the last uh, five years, we've collected uh, uh, biopsies in clinical trials and also outside clinical trials. We focus mainly on the immune- immunological side, uh, the the data that has been published from, from the uh, few clinical trials for which we have biomarkers is mainly focused on the immune response, but we have the the tumor samples there. And we have some of them have performed uh, genomic analysis. We need yep. to dive into this. Genomic- Are you
1: really optimistic here, Bruno? I mean, I'm yeah. always claiming we need biopsies and um, we should get away from all comma inclusion in clinical trials and do it uh, hypothesis based. Yes,
0: but, but I, I'm, I'm siding with Bruno because I think we cannot expect that we will find a simple biomarker. It will not be. PD1, I And mean, this one, is one whatever. of the
1: points I, I was trying to make. One issue is it's the tremendous heterogeneity. So it's, it's, uh, you only have, uh, uh, um, mutated genes in a single-digit number uh, frame. And then the other issue which we are still a, unable to overcome really is the uh, prognostic relevance of several aspects such as liver function, alb one versus alb 2 I mean, it makes such a difference. And if you are not selecting for the prognostically um, homogeneous group of patients, then you won't see it. This is coming to a, a point which I... Would like to get your opinion on? Wouldn't it be better to go for objective response and forget about um, OS and PFS at least OS because it's so much influenced by by prognostically relevant factors. OS uh, objective response would at least give us the clear um, the clear link of uh, signature to tumor shrinkage.
2: Well, my opinion is uh, certainly there are two things that we have to pay attention to uh, because they are, um, when we talk about immunotherapy, they are quite unique. One is the ability to induce deep, durable responses. And so the rate of those deep, durable responses could provide you with a hint of the potency of a given treatment or combination. The second one is the tail of the curve. At the end of the day, our patients want to be, want to live long. That's basically the the the, the, the highest need, and, uh, 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 and and of course the performance of the overall cohort is, is important. But I think we increasingly have to acknowledge the value of long-term survivorship.
1: I agree. Stable yeah. disease is a is a good choice if you live long. Yeah,
0: but it's also maybe if we were talking about about um, these. Uh, study endpoints and parameters. Um, I think over response rate has not really correlated very well with, with MOS. Um, PFS has for a long time um, been a good predictor, but it is not anymore, as we are seeing now in the, in the uh, more, more newer studies, in, in Himalaya study, for instance. Um, so we do not really have these early surrogate p- parameters for, for, for MOS anymore that are convincing in HEC, I think.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. And so, but maybe, it, I mean, we, have, we do not have so much time. And um, so maybe we should also talk a little bit about practical. So what can we do now? And one, one thing that that has been introduced before is, I mean, we have the clinical trials with all the caveats. We have the potential endpoints, which might change and we might need to decide. We need biopsies before treatment. Can we take an archive for biopsy? I mean, a lot of questions, yeah. But one point that was mentioned before already are real world data. So, what is the value of real world data? And uh, Peter, you you just said, I mean, can we compare Imbrave 19 month, Durvalumab 16 month? So, I challenge you, Imbrave 19 month, Leap 002, and Vatinet 19 month. Yeah, and when we look at the Italian Japanese co-production, which has just recently published with more than 2,000 patients. Lenva compared to RTL in real world, no difference in overall survival. So what is the value? I mean, not, I, I don't want to go too much into detail about this comparison, but what, is the, what do you think is the value of, of real world data? Can we use real world data to define patient population that help us to decide which patient should get which treatment?
1: I think it's fair to get started with a defined setting. And this is a randomized control trials because it gives you a clear answer, but then it's more complex. And the performance of lenvatinib in in Reflect and in deepo 2 tells you that uh, patient selection and skills of treating physicians vary over time. And and that explains then the difference. So that would be the first answer to to your point. Of course, cross-trial comparisons are very important. But you then need to explain what what is the difference, and there are tremendous uh, uh, differences. Yeah, um, real world data. I mean, they are the basis of our um, our trust in what we are doing. I mean, the 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 major change i observed over recent years was when we came from tkis and you were if you were passing along uh, the patients in the outpatient clinic and the tki time and the immune therapy time, there are different patients sitting there. They they just look differently. Yeah? Their skin is better and so on. So this is a real world experience, which is adding to your belief in, in whatever therapy you have. And then there are just too many questions which cannot be answered in randomized controlled trials. For example, extending into poorer liver function and so on. I mean, these, these are uh, aspects where we need these academic settings, small trials, shedding more light to it, combining it with um, real world data, gaining experience. I think this is still of, of value in, in modern times.
2: If, if I may add, um, and I have to, to acknowledge that I'm a, a bit skeptical about the value of real world data, basically bef- because you need to pay attention to the quality of the data. So we all agree that uh, clinical trials may vary in the quality of the design and the conduct, and this impacts on the credibility of the results. But this impact is much, much stronger for real world studies. And I think we as researchers have to make an effort to conduct good real world studies, prospectively collected data rather than retrospective analysis, which is Full of biases, etc. We we, we we have a good opportunity of conducting good real-world data that could be informative.
3: Yeah, and, yeah, I mean, part of this is also that we need to have good criteria how we report real-world data, right? So I think this is something that is more and more acknowledged and there are different rules and, and suggestions out there, which at the moment ESMO is also investing a lot in that. I think we really need good criteria to define... What is reported, how is it reported, yeah, what are the endpoints, and that there's really a very clear description of of, of the data that are provided. I think that is really critical if we think that we could rely more on, on real world data.
2: Absolutely, yes.
0: And I think it's not only the comparability um why I find real world data important. Real-world data also give me a a kind of a horizon of expectations in patient populations that are not patient populations that are usually included in clinical trials, but they are patients that we see in daily clinical practice. So I think this is one of the major benefits why um, I'm interested in real-world data, because that gives me an initial idea of what can I expect from this treatment in my patient.
1: I, I, solid, I well-defined registries would would really be a very solid source of real-world um, uh, behavior of patients. Yeah. Well,
2: well, I agree with that. I, 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 let, let's remember that uh, and, and we've seen this in the past, and we've seen this. We will see this in the future. Uh, uh, um, clinical trials can be done in these populations that were not recruited into the initial clinical trials, and uh, for example, the child PB cohort with new volume map and now there is a there is a, a strong effort to uh, recruit patients uh uh, uh treated with uh, a number of of, of uh, therapies uh, uh that uh, were not uh, did not meet the inclusion criteria so we're excluded from prior trials so we still can do clinical trials in these populations
0: yeah That's absolutely good. I agree but um I think there's always this question of that we want to advance the field on a rapid pace if possible. And um, especially if, if there are already um, drugs that are out there, um, they are already placed on in the market. And um, then we need to be able to to make those trials. We need to be able to finance those trials. And it's, I, it's, it's this is an ideal setting, right? I completely agree. But I also think that we have to look at the feasibility and be realistic because we want to gain as much information as we can from the information that's out there, right? And so I think we have to take different approaches into account. It is not only trial data, but also real-world data.
3: So now 2022 is almost over, and our time is also almost over. And the topic today was not only a wrap-up, which I think we provided, but also an outlook. Yeah. So maybe in the last five minutes, each of us should briefly outline what she or he thinks is the most exciting part in 2023. So oh. Peter, Bruno, Anna, so what do you think? What what are the most important data in 2023? So in which direction will our decision making change? Which data do you expect? So what 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 do you think is the most important? in?
1: Yeah, year? so we will see um, more clinical trials check mid 90W another CTLA-4, PD-1 combination that will be interesting. Of course, we are all very curious about the adjuvant trials ongoing. Is um, the adjuvant setting um, with immunotherapy in particular uh, improved by um, systemic therapy? We have the combination when intermediate stage, um, either adding systemic therapy, to taste, or um, as we are doing it in the ABC-HCC trial, comparing systemic therapy uh, with local therapy, this actually will take longer. So I would say more trials and adjuvant trials. That's my um, that's what I'm curious about in 2023.
0: Anna, um, well, I can only agree there, but I think what I'm also curious and to see um, how IO after I.O. will be performing, because especially when I.O. is moving in adjuvant settings or in combination settings, I think this will be a question that um, will will really follow us during the next couple of years. And um, independent of that, I think um, we also need to make sure during the next years that the regulatory agencies are actually keeping pace with the developments in the field, because it's Great to have many developments, but if the regulatory agencies do not approve them, um, then we are really rapidly back to Serafinep, at least in Germany.
3: I think that's a good point. And I just read this morning an interesting article um, about MSI and immune checkpoint inhibitors. And in this article, they again highlighted that the FDA approved PDL1 antibodies in 2017 right? And EMA in 2021. So four years later, um, this morning, we learned that duobanumab is approved by EMA in cholangiocarcinoma, which is great news. But again, it's um, quite a while after FDA, which already has approved, but it's not four years anymore. So I completely agree. Regulatory agencies are very important. So what about you, Bruno? What what is your most
2: on top of what has been said on it's getting difficult with color region uh, there are two things one one I, I, I will, i'm curious about the performance of uh, new checkpoint inhibitors and, and we expect to have data from from lact3 uh, antibodies anti lac 3 antibodies and and others and 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 i'm really curious to see if the uh, uh, immune response can be further uh, um, 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 potentiated with with these uh, other combinations, as it has been with uh, tremelimumab, or eventually, let's see, with ipilimumab. And on the other hand, uh, my, my it's not it's not what I advise, but my wish, certainly, adding on what Anna and you were commenting, is is at least for European countries, an increase in equity in access to to treatments. There is no reason why active agents should not be provided to patients in, 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 in Europe uh, anymore. And there is a lot to do because there are still gross inequities.
3: And actually independent of treatment line, right? I mean, so in Germany, we still have this odd situation that sorafenib is the only reimbursed drug in second line without any trial with sorafenib in second line. Yes, it's kind of uh, interesting. Yeah, so Thank you very much. I, I agree with all of that. I think I, I'm really interested to see how how the treatment of HCC patients will continue to be in next year. So I think we have now all these approvals. I see that more and more HCCs are treated in the community. Um, and I, I'm a little bit curious to see how this will impact um, also how patients are treated, because I I still think that these patients need to be treated in centers. Um, They need to be evaluated for all treatment options, including liver transplantation. We should not miss um, potentially curative treatment. And I think in the past, we always said we are using too much local therapy. Now, I think we need to be careful that we do not use too much systemic therapies, so every patient still needs to be um, discussed in a multidisciplinary tumor board, and I think this is really very, very important, and all colleagues who are not treating HCC patients so often, always keep in mind, please, these patients need to be discussed in a tumor board, and otherwise I agree with what we have discussed before, I mean, this translational aspect biopsies, translational research, PDX models, mouse models. I think they're really important. And with that, hopefully, we will find new targets not only for checkpoint inhibitors, but also maybe for really targeted therapies uh, we have now seen KRAS get druggable, maybe wind signaling gets druggable. So I think there's more to come in the future. And with that, I think we will add this Beasel um, Studio. It was a great pleasure to see you. Not to have dinner, unfortunately, but at least to see you and discuss with you the progress you have made in 2022. Thank you very much and see you next year.